Welcome to New Mexico in Focus. This is your podcast edition for Monday, November 8th, and I am your host, as always, Kevin McDonald, executive producer here at New Mexico PBS. Hope you had an outstanding weekend as we kick into a new month and also the changing of the clock. Hope that didn't wreak too much havoc on your weekend. It always seems to for me, but I will enjoy the sun coming up a little earlier in the morning. I hope you will as well. All right, we got a lot to dive into in this episode, so we want to get right to it. A reminder, our line panel from our most recent episode included Dan Foley. He's one of our regulars and former House Minority Whip. Also one of our regulars, Michael Byrd, who is a public health consultant. And we welcome back Inez Russell Gomez from the editorial page at the Santa Fe New Mexican. In our last episode, if you didn't catch it, they talked about, of course, the big news of last week, the election results. Also news that the uh, Roundhouse, our state capital, will no longer uh, allow firearms inside the building except for police and uniformed military. So go back, give that a listen if you haven't already. But we also talked to that group about the CDC and FDA's approval last week of the Pfizer vaccine for COVID for kids ages 5 through 11. And that comes in a time in New Mexico in our cases continue to just surge in almost an unexplainable way. Uh, Last Thursday, I believe it was, it was about 1,600 cases. And of course, we're heading into flu, another sick season. And so there is a lot of hope that uh, getting our kids vaccinated will help turn the tide there. But we also know that those who may be hesitant to get the vaccine might even be more hesitant with their children, even though it has been approved. So wanted to find out what messaging should look like, uh, the opinions from our line panel, and just how we roll this out and really try to beat this thing back for good. So here now, host Gene Grant. Those bonds will make it easier for Mayor Keller to move forward on his agenda, but Tuesday's results created a different hurdle for the returning mayor. Power has shifted in city council, with Democratic incumbents in districts one and five losing their seats to conservative challengers and with seats in districts seven and nine headed to a runoff. The council could move to the right ideologically. That could make for some clashes between council and the mayor's office. So on that note, let's bring in our line opinion panel for their thoughts coming out of election day. Want to welcome in former House Minority Whip Dan Foley, who's back with us. Also, Inez Russell Gomez, editorial page editor at the Santa Fe New Mexican. Always great to have her. And Michael Byrd, former president of the American Public Health Association and a regular on our line of panel. Always glad to have Michael as well. Thank you all for being here. Now, we'll get to the races around the state in a moment and touch on the historic turnout we saw. But let's keep it in Albuquerque for a moment. Mayor Keller avoids a runoff, but he takes a hit with the stadium vote, guys. And he's going to have to navigate a more conservative council regardless of how those runoffs end next month. So Daniel, you're no stranger to dealing with those sorts of power dynamics. How will this impact Mayor Keller's agenda headed into his second term? Yeah, I mean, you know, I think it's interesting that he was so closely tied to the stadium to start, Mm -hmm. but he did a great job of distancing himself during the election from making them two separate and distinct issues Mm -hmm. because there seems to be very little bleed over from the overwhelming defeat of the stadium to the overwhelming victory of Mayor Keller. Mm-hmm. And I think if we would have had this conversation a year ago, 18 months ago, a lot of people would have said, oh, this is a really tough scenario. I mean, if one goes down, how will it affect the other? But right. I, I think it just kind of shows 
his his gravitas as a politician right he he was all in for the stadium but as his election started and candidates announced there was very little that you saw from mayor keller about the stadium right mm-hmm. i mean he mm-hmm. he quickly went to plus i think he did a very good job of never taking the bait right he just talked about the few successes he's had as mayor and just ran with those right i mean mm-hmm. he just he just never answered any questions about why is crime so high why is homelessness the way it is he just and not only did he not answer questions about it, he did a decent job of putting out ads claiming victories in those very areas that you were, people were trying to attack him on, right? Yeah. Crime is horrible in Albuquerque. You'd watch a Mayor Keller deal and he'd say, well, break-ins in left-handed Lithuanians' homes in the Northeast Heights are down this year. Right. And people were like, oh, well, okay. So, you know, it's it's a, it's an amazing deal. But I, I, I thought it was a – I'm not surprised that the stadium went down. What is interesting is that the amount of money that was put in for the stadium to pass Oof. versus the grassroots for the stadium to fail. Right. Other than the Rio Grande Foundation, I don't think you'll find any organized fundraising activity to go out and defeat the stadium. That was a purely grassroots, yep. organic, yep. from the streets. And like we joked before, you know, to see the people in Borellis siding and partnering with the Rio Grande Foundation, that is definitely one of the seven signs of the apocalypse. Um, you know, mm-hmm. and I think it's just a sign to politicians, you better be careful. You know, you think you're putting everybody in these boxes, but people will quickly jump out of those boxes and join forces if they feel like you're coming after them. Mm-hmm. And I think the stadium proved that. Mm-hmm. Hey, Michael, you know, the voters rejected it at a wider margin than the polling predicted. Interesting. And do we have consensus now about what the stadium situation is going to be? How, what's your takeaway from this? Well, I, you know, I, I guess the thing, uh, the thing I'm looking at really is, is, you know, looking at those communities and mm-hmm. what are those communities needs. And, and they clearly felt like, like um, they were not part of the process and they were not part of the conversation. And so I think, um, I think that 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 may reflect on um, you know the mayor and 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 um, his administration, mm-hmm. and and really not having the kind of conversations that need to take place with with communities and community leadership. Um, you know, to Dan's point, that the you know that it was they they that they they reject. I mean, they, it appears that they you know rejected it um, kind of outright. And so I, I think that um, it leads me to another point, and that is some of the issues that the, the, the city is facing in terms of homelessness and and, and policing. Mm-hmm. Um, what kind of conversations are really occurring with uh, community leadership That's and right. the communities in terms of what what are your needs and what are we what are we doing, mm-hmm. and also maybe more importantly, what are we not doing to work with you? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that that you know that there's there may be more there i think there's there's a there's there's a conversation a deeper conversation that is needed community leadership that's right that's a good point hey inez let's bounce up to santa fe of course uh, the santa fe mayor race was very interesting alan weber avoided uh that 50 percent or below threshold uh joanne vigil coppler couldn't get it done alexis martinez johnson with 10 percent as well i got a question though what what won it for him i'm, I'm just very curious we've been hearing his COVID 19 pandemic response, people trusted him with a second term. How much of that factored in, in your view? Um, I think that was it. I, mm-hmm. I actually think the mask mandate vote is mm-hmm. what did it more than anything, because 
even though Joanne Beale Coppler, when she was on the city council, had very you know solid reasons that it wasn't as well written, the man the mandate ordinance wasn't as well written as it should be. Mm -hmm. It was unfairly bringing police in to uh, write tickets, and it wasn't going to be enforceable. And why have a law if it was enforceable? The fact that when she voted against it, she said absolutely not. Mm was just fodder for you know advertisements that were true mm -hmm. if you took the time and looked at the entire council meeting and the series of meetings leading up to the vote you could understand her vote in context but at the moment where the pandemic was at its height where people needed to get behind the governor's public health order the mayor introduced it he passed it and he made the case that it wasn't enough just to go along with what the governor was doing, that we had to have our own statement. And she didn't understand that. Mm -hmm. And I think people in the community realize that when you have a crisis, you want a leader who gets it mm -hmm. in that moment. Even if the solution isn't perfect, you go for it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Daniel. Um Election day, of course, with a hyper-local focus that didn't stop voters from surging to the polls. It was interesting. Burleo County breaking a record for turnout, more than 30%, as we all know, for an off year. Was it the stadium? Was it other things? What, what was going on here to get so many folks? Yeah, I, I think it's an interesting combination. I was just thinking, um, you know, as we're talking about this, you know, it's, it's interesting to see Mayor Keller have done so well in the re-election, and yet incumbent city councilors do so poorly. So I think it clearly, you know, the, it clearly indicates that the people blame the city council mm. for the situations we're in in Albuquerque, not the mayor, per mm -hmm. se, which mm -hmm. to me says the mayor did a good job of presenting it that way, right? I mean, making himself look at, you know, the reality is we have a lot of problems in Albuquerque. There's no doubt about it. Yep. And, you know, the voters are not, they're not idiots. They know these problems exist. And so, you know, what I think is the mayor did a great job of saying, look, I'm really not the root cause of these problems. He didn't blame anybody. I'm not saying he said that. He just said, look, if, if you know, there's nothing to see here, I'm doing the best I can do, which I think left everybody else to say, well, if it's not his fault, right. it's got to be somebody's fault. And you're seeing it uh, in the outcome in the elections because it's interesting. It's yep. going to be interesting to see how long it lasts. Let me ask you this. You just hit on something there. Dan Lewis, uh, particularly getting back in the game, I got to think that's going to be a pain in a lot of different parts of the Mayor Keller's body here. I mean, does he have oh, an agenda yeah. of, of his own? So you, your, your former opponent, the first time you ran for mayor in a highly contested mayoral yep. race, is now going to be probably the, the leader, potentially the leader of the city council in a short amount of time. Right. He, he potentially has the, the ability to be the leader in title. He's clearly, with his experience, going to be the leader at least, at minimum, behind the scenes. And and if you think that if people think Dan Lewis ran without a little bone to you know to grind with with Tim Keller, I'm not sure as the mayor that I'd want to have Dan Lewis mm -hmm. in there with his gravitas, having run for mayor, having run for higher office, his having been in the spotlight. I think you're going to see some interesting dynamic changes at City Hall and within the City Council, especially if the Republicans can pick up one or two of these runoff seats. They mm -hmm. pick up all the runoff seats, you know, it's gonna be mayhem in, in Albuquerque. I mean, you're gonna have a conservative council and yep. a progressive mayor, yep. zero chance of anything happening. If they win one of them, it's gonna be interesting to see how people can come together and govern together, because you're gonna have a center-right 
That's city right. council then That's right. with a progressive mayor. And it's going to be interesting to see how Dan Lewis, who I think has the gravitas and the ability to step forward in that leadership role to really get done what he wants to get done mm-hmm. in way becoming the de facto mayor, right, with the city That's council right. vote That's right. getting his done. Hey, Michael, got to get in school boards. Why was there so much interest in these school board races? Well, I, given... The cha- given the history of challenges um, in terms of Albuquerque's school board specifically, mm-hmm. I think that um, you know it's 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 clear that um, that there have been some issues, and I think there's a there's there's heightened interest in 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 moving us forward, and and those issues need to be addressed. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's increased the the um, interest and in turnout and and activity that's taken place. Yeah, good stuff there. Outside money came in strong for some of the candidates that won. A very interesting t- uh, turn of events, as Dan mentioned, about the philosophical bent of our, of our school board now. But as they say, it's on to the midterms. Thank you all for your thoughts on this week's vote. Before we move on to other topics on Election Day, I did have the chance to talk with Mayor Keller and the city's first lady, Elizabeth. Part of our conversation focused on the impacts of this campaign on what, at that point, wasn't a guaranteed second term. On election day, we had the chance to catch up to uh, now newly reelected Mayor Tim Keller uh, and his wife, the First Lady of Albuquerque. Uh, and Jean had some questions for them, even though everything was not final. We were uh, talking a lot about the big issues in the election, crime being at the top of the list and homelessness. Also, that stadium vote, which the mayor pushed for. And then as uh, things went on basically took a new stance of whatever the voters decide, I'll stand by. And so there was a lot to talk to him about. And we were going to bring that to you. Only had a chance in the show for this first clip, which was, again, really dealing with crime and his efforts and what he wants to continue to do uh, in his second term. And so, again, this was recorded on Tuesday, but uh, his plans still very much um, something that we should all be listening to as Tim Keller heads into his second administration, his second four-year term. After that, you'll hear his thoughts about the stadium vote and whether or not he and his administration were surprised by the pushback on that. Made a big announcement back this summer about this, and it didn't take long for the, the tide to sort of turn on that one, and the vote went the way a lot of folks expected. Then last, the other big issue in the election, homelessness and the Gateway Center. Want to talk to him about if there's a disconnect over what the Gateway Center is actually supposed to do, considering voters actually approve that. But uh, Mayor Keller's opponents uh, really used that against him in many of the debates that we saw in recent months. So lots here from newly reelected Mayor Tim Keller. Each campaign is a little different. You know, sometimes they're about people. Sometimes they're about uh, particular issues or which direction we're going in. I think this one was really about what kind of leadership we need in a crisis. Mm-hmm. And so what I've learned is that we all agree our city's in tough shape. Every candidate knows that. Every candidate agrees it's crime and homelessness. But also people want you to run the whole city. So they want you to deal with those, but they also know you still got to do things like animal welfare and solid waste and planning and everything else in between. And so it's really about uh, can a mayor put together a leadership team that's going to make a difference across those issues. 
As we sit here on November 2nd, we've just hit our 95th murder uh, in the city as of this morning, the Southeast Heights, which will obviously we're on our way towards a yearly record. What's what's gone off the track here when it comes to combating murder in Albuquerque? And how do we explain this to voters? I think what really changed was this summer when we got our Metro Crime Initiative together. And that was something, you know, it's, it's hard to believe, but never has the attorney general, the DA, the state chief of police, legislators, the governor's office, even judges, even the public defender's office sat down and tried to answer the question you just asked, because fundamentally it's an acknowledgement that we all have a role to play. So yeah, the mayor has a role and sure, so does the chief of police, but this is where the revolving door comes in and gun crime comes in, how we're actually uh, you know, dealing with the connection between the two and looking at the public health nature of uh, violent crime with respect to people, with respect to people who essentially shoot back. And you see this even this weekend, you know, this is about groups who are fighting with each other and shooting each other. And so to understand that, you get to these ideas like our violence intervention work that we're trying to do, and we need to have statewide. And so that agenda that we came out with in September, that is about changes in the criminal justice system, mm -hmm. that is something that is new, and that is something that I think is going to make a real difference. The other one is APD has been retooling for a long time. We've put $80 million into actually trying to bring us up to like 2015 level crime fighting technology. And that's definitely going to help things like the gunshot detection software and so forth. But I do want to acknowledge the ocean we're swimming in. You know, I mean, this was the highest year for violent crime in the history of America, according to the FBI. So uh, we need to keep doing what we've got to do. Uh, but we also need to understand that uh, we're connected to broader uh, trends, whether it's felons coming from California and committing crimes here, which we saw earlier this summer, uh, to our own issues around addiction that we've got to deal with at every level. Both of your opponents, Mayor, have tried to paint you as someone who doesn't support law enforcement officers, actually. I know you've heard a lot of this. The union notably just announced they will not endorse any of the candidates in this race. What do you need to change if elected to get the union and rank and file police folks on board with your vision? Well, I think actually this was a good thing for us. I mean, I'm literally running against a police officer. So the fact that the union didn't endorse the sheriff is a major victory for us. That was expected. Uh, that was similar with fire. Anytime you're running against someone who's in public safety, uh, you don't expect to get those endorsements. Um, but I think for us, we know, and I think we learned from each other, uh, they know what they get with me. I will stick to my values and we're gonna set goals and we're gonna hold people accountable for them. And we wanna work with them in that process. And I do think actually, and they would admit to this as well, we, ha we do talk and work in a collaborative way. We just don't always agree. And I think what they'll get with re-election is uh, they know what they're getting. And I think we've proven that we can work forward and move together. Mm -hmm. But no, when they push back against reform, I will push back against them. When they say things that are not true about our administration, I will push back against them. We've given our officers the largest pay raise in history, but we've also created amazing things like our community safety department. And they supported us on that to their credit. So actually, I think we have a lot to build on and it's a lot better uh, working relationship than you might see in a headline. Mayor, the downtown multi-use stadium, of course, has become a very controversial subject here. I mean, did, did this catch you by surprise how controversial this thing had become? I mean, you know, maybe especially from the neighborhoods where the idea from that study thought it should go. Did this catch you by surprise? 
Well, a couple of things have been interesting about this issue, whether you're for or against it. Uh, There's a national narrative, right, against stadiums. And when it comes to like Major League Baseball and the NFL, I mean, I totally understand that. I think what's been surprising is, you know, we're we're talking about minor league soccer uh, and in New Mexico, very much same thing as the isotopes. And again, whether you're for or against it, it's just different than the Raiders moving to Las Vegas. And I think to the extent to which people have tried to make these the same thing, uh, I think has been very surprising. You know, to me, this is a local question. And if a neighborhood doesn't want it, we're not going to do it there. I mean, it's not, uh, in a sense, that complicated for us. But when you layer in all of these other, you know, studies in the New York Times and this and that, none of them have anything to do with minor league soccer in Albuquerque. And so that certainly has been surprising. But I think that is a good reason of why we put it on the ballot. We could have done this without putting it on the ballot. And myself and the counselors, we all agreed, let's give the voters the choice. And so, well, look, it's can been I, a great can I, can, I interrupt for, can I interrupt for a quick sec? I'm not quite clear what you mean by you could have done it without going to the voters. What, 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 what process yeah. was there otherwise? It's a, it was just a city council vote. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, those bond issues, uh, depending on the type of bond, but this one would have been seven votes, which was the same amount that uh, it passed to go to the voters. Uh, with seven votes, we could have just done it. And there was a lot of pressure to do that. And we said, no, let's send this to the voters. The people should decide and we should have a public debate on it. So I think by that score, it's been, that is, was a great idea, sending this to the voters, because I think we're going to get a definitive answer and we'll honor that answer. Was was there a step, was there possibly a step before going to the voters though, Mayor, as you being the honest third broker, watching out for the finances of the city and taxpayers' wallets and all that kind of thing, should we have not said to the guys, go out and find some private money of a certain percentage first, then we'll talk about going to the voters, maybe half of it, a third of it? Well, unfortunately, the, the bond cycle just didn't allow for that. So, you know, the issue is coming out of uh, the budget year that we had in the spring, and then you get the financial forecasts, and then you have to put everything you want on the ballot for November. You have to do that in August. Mm-hmm. So we basically had two months to decide. And um, that's, you know, for better or worse, that's just the way that city finance works. These are refinancing bonds. And if you don't reissue them, obviously the money uh, is not spent and that tax increment goes away. Mm-hmm. And so um, we had two months to decide. That's, that's just, you know, the way the bond math works. And so, you know, again, it, it, we could have delayed it for many years. But I think it was important to have the discussion. And, you know, last summer, too, it's, it's hard to remember, but it was a time of optimism. Uh, crime wasn't quite as bad. Homelessness wasn't quite as bad. And we were coming out of a pandemic. And I think we were all looking much further down the road to the future for our families. And, and that was really um, part of the reason why it's like, OK, well, let's let the voters vote on this in November. Mm-hmm. In the journal poll, I'm sure you're aware of, I'm sure you're aware of, uh, 50% of the voters were not crazy about the idea of the two front running locations in neighborhoods. About 50% were opposed to having them in those neighborhoods. If in fact this does not pass tonight, is that idea gone about going into those neighborhoods? In, but what happens after that? Well, we always committed to a community benefits agreement with the neighborhood and Borellis uh, Community Coalition was open to that. So it's not that they weren't opposed. 
uh, but they were open to the discussion. Uh, San Jose did not want it. So we said, great, we won't go to San Jose or Broadway. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think if it fails, though, look, at the end of the day, we're not going to put it where people don't want it. So I think it's not going to go if it goes anywhere in any of those places. So you've got to look at vacant UNM land. And, and this would be the team, really, or, you know, land outside the city. But they're going to have to do that. It's going to have to be a private thing. You know, there might be some public partnership in there, but it's not. we're not going to bond for $50 million. But I would just mention the rail runner. Core to the idea of a stadium was to have it along the rail runner line. And so I still think, like, in general, that's a good idea. And so whether it's the Balloon Fiesta or whether it's a stadium, you know, uh, doing big public entertainment amenities along the rail runner is a good idea. So that does, you know, that's always a preference for me in general. There seems to be, and this is an opinion, there seems to be a disconnect between some of the public of what the Gateway Center is actually supposed to do versus what it isn't. And then also, how do we deal with the problem, you know, folks posting on Facebook pictures of homeless folks up up, uh, underpasses, you know, by major intersections, there's a sense that it's just growing outward instead of just sort of being in this one area that can be a little more contained. What do you say to folks who who are very concerned about the spread of homelessness here in the community? Well, we're very concerned about it as well. So, I mean, I think I completely agree with them. And we know that all over the country, it is true, uh, similar to violent crime, but some of these things coming out of the pandemic are, um, they're, look, they're just, they're issues that every mayor is challenged with. Mm -hmm. And that's no exception here in Albuquerque. But I think it's important because we have to address this from all sides. And so it, you know, we put half a billion dollars in supportive and affordable housing in the last four years. And we've got to do that again because we're playing catch up. We also have to look at, you know, uh, ways to connect with people on the street. And that's part of our community safety department. You know, that is nationally innovative. And it's about how do you actually get the right help at the right time for folks who need it. But we also have to understand, you know, if some people just don't want help, Uh, We have to have somewhere where they can go uh, and at least get sorted out or get a good night's rest in a shower. And that's that's what the Gateway Center uh, functions as. It's just a clearinghouse so that we can get people the right help for them. Some people, it's a housing voucher. Some people, it's job training. Uh, Some people, it's uh, mental and behavioral health uh, treatment. Some people, it's detox. But you can't do that to someone who's, you know, literally sleeping on the street. You can't provide that to them. So we have to have somewhere where uh, they can go, where we can transport them to. And that's what the Gateway Center is all about. So it's also something, look, almost every city has something like the Gateway Center. Albuquerque should have done this 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. And until we do it, we can't get to those other slices of the problem because that's really like the hub for the spokes. And so um, the last thing I would just say is that Having people to go out who are not police officers to homeless folks is very important. And that's what this new department is, trained social workers, trained individuals to deal with that, and also literally having the volume of people to do it so that our officers can do violent crime calls, but also we have enough people to actually answer those calls like within 30 minutes, not four hours later. That's going to make a big difference, too. But lastly, I would just say, you know, we need everyone to help with this. This is a county issue. It's a statewide issue. And we do know that a large portion of our homeless population comes in from outside Albuquerque. And so that's why we have to have also coordinated outreach efforts so that they never have to come to Albuquerque. And that's what we're going to be pushing the upcoming legislative session as well. 
Let's jump back to the line opinion roundtable now. You may have seen this headline, but we often refer to the roundhouse here in New Mexico, our state capital, as the people's house. And it is that. It's getting back to that after being closed down in last year's legislative session because of COVID. And while the people are welcome, guns no longer will be except for a few exceptions. That's because the legislative council voted this week uh, to ban firearms except for uh, law enforcement and uniformed military. And that created quite an uproar. The state Republican Party came out to bash this. Gubernatorial candidate Rebecca Dow as well. Not only just the decision in a state that is gun-friendly, but also the way it was done, uh, where the full body of the legislature did not vote on this decision. And uh, there were also discussions taken behind closed doors during that debate And so wanted to dive into that, also considering the idea of how it seems as if opponents want to um, pin this decision on the governor, even though, again, it was a legislative council, which uh, sets out the rules for the building. And this really is in their purview. But again, do they owe it to everyone in the legislature to let the full body vote on this? So here now, again, Gene Grant and the line. New Mexico's house has been reopened to the public for several months now, but while people are allowed back in, starting soon, you'll have to leave your gun at home if you want to visit the roundhouse. The Legislative Council voted this week along party lines to ban firearms from the Capitol building. The state Republican Party and gubernatorial candidate Rebecca Dow were quick to pounce on the decision, but Inez, many states instituted similar bans years ago, and we were really kind of late on this. Is this really an issue or just another political flashpoint? I think it is a flashpoint, and I was actually a little disappointed that no Republican could vote in favor of keeping weapons away from lawmaking, Mm -hmm. Um, especially in a time where you already had citizens, even if they were only armed with, uh, you know, fire extinguishers or whatever they took to the Capitol on January 6th, who mobbed the Capitol. You've had what happened in Michigan where armed people went in threatening employees. And we had, you know, mass shootings all over the country. Mm-hmm. It just doesn't make sense to bring in weapons um, when you're debating heated issues and, uh, you know, discussing what's going on in our community. It, it seems like words are better weapons mm-hmm. than, than guns. People have a right to their fear, Inez. I mean, they have yeah. a right to it. If, if people feel threatened as an elected official, they have a right to feel that way and act accordingly. But Dan... I will ask this, interesting critics of the decision point out that only members of that committee, you know, and not the full House and Senate voted on this firearms ban. And do they have a point here? Should it have been something the entire legislature voted on? Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I, I, I don't know. I mean, mm-hmm. the, you know, the Legislative Council is the one that runs the Capitol. I mean, that's that's the people in charge mm-hmm. with running the Capitol, right? It's just like in Washington, D.C. We heard a little bit about it, but, you know, all of that's run by the Speaker's office, right? right? And it, in New Mexico, it's run it's run by Legislative Council. So we, we have these committees, you acquies- acquiesce, bringing everybody together. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, you know, the outcome, my, my feeling is the outcome would have been the same whether you had the full House or you had, you know, uh, you know, the legislative council meeting. So, you know, there's, you know, it is what it is. I'm not necessarily saying that I agree with it or disagree with it. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I served up there for 10 years. You know, I, I, I think, you know, I think this conversation about guns, and this is why I think we are incapable of having a legitimate conversation about guns in this country, is because everybody 
it tends to lead to hyperbole, right? I mean, I, I was there 10 years. There was never a, a single scare with a weapon in the Capitol. Nothing. I mean, I got threatened to get beat up. I got threatened to get killed. I got spit on. I had multiple things happen when I was there. There was never a threat with a gun. Mm -hmm. And uh, as a matter of fact, the only time I ever saw a gun outside of the state police uh, was when we were dealing with the land grant stuff. Right. And the land grant guys would show up. And man, those dudes were packing. I mean, yes, those yes, would right there man but they showed up packing right and so you know i'm not sure what the message is you know i, I it's i never in my 10 years up there granted i've been gone a while mm -hmm. i never saw this you know people walking around the capitol with ar strapped to their backs and you know packing the guns i just think it's you know another opportunity for us to escalate the conversation about guns and it's definitely a flashpoint issue that people love to get excited about on both sides of the issue mm -hmm. and uh you know, I think it's going to lead to this next session. You're going to wind up with a ton of protests. You're going to have a ton of people trying to show up there with concealed carry weapons and permits and doing the things really? that are going to happen. You, you know, oh, I, yeah, mark my words. It'll happen. I just They'll, want to just huh. jump in really briefly. Please. Our people with guns now, that's the reason they did it. They wouldn't have to have this rule if we didn't have a bunch of people sitting while young children and mothers and other people and gun victim violences are testifying, staring at you with your gun in your lap. I have been there when they did that. Mm -hmm. It's yep. it's just they not did, okay. They, they did that when I was there. I mean, the line line guys like showed up with their weapons and did the exact same thing. So, I, I mean, seeing that we've suddenly got this mass influx of guns in New Mexico is crazy. We've been a gun-toting state forever. I mean, they're in the back of pickup trucks. People are carrying let, them. Let me, let, me, let me get Michael in here real quick. I hear your point, Dan. And, uh, you know, intimidation, uh, while not against the law, it has its emotional impact. And I say again, people have the right to their fear uh, and, and act accordingly. So are we going to take the same? So my question, Gene, I know you want to go to Michael. I'm sorry. But my question is, mm -hmm. are you going to take the same steps if fear and intimidation and that's the feeling, which I'm not disagreeing with, then what are you going to do whenever there's a right to work bill sure. and they get 50 union people in there and they let nobody else in and the union people are chanting at you I've and the police are oh, yeah. all right to work people. Mm -hmm. Apparently we don't have the same intimidation factor. Well, they don't the, have a gun. They don't have a gun, right. They, they don't, don't have a gun. There's they a don't difference. Have a gun. Okay. So, can I jump in? Please. Go ahead, Michael. Yes. Mm -hmm. First of all, um, you know, what, what, what happened 10, 15, 20 years ago, it, 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 things have changed and, and threats have escalated. Mm -hmm. um, threats are being made to school board members in different parts of the country. Um, uh, the level of threatening behavior has increased. And I think that that's, that's real clear. Um, second thing is that there is, you know, there is when somebody show, I mean, if you've got, Tim Worth, who's saying that he has felt extremely intimidated and fearful because there were guns, mm -hmm. you know, I, I respect that. I believe that to be the case. I believe that to be true. And I do not believe if we're supposed to be this civil society that's respectful of all people and opinions, then we need to be able to express ourselves without any fear of intimidation. Mm -hmm. I, I, you know, this it. I think it's an appropriate. Given the times, I think it's an appropriate action, and um, in, there's a whole. There's also a whole lot of history here that 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 people are unaware of as 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 to the role that of, that guns have played in this nation. Mm -hmm. And um, I'll I'll just close by saying, you know, people would say that's how the West was won, and as Native people. There's been a price, and, and some of us are well aware of that, that history, a history of genocide, 
in which weaponry was directed at our communities and our people. And that's one of the reasons I'll just say there's so many of you and so few of us. And if you don't believe that, look at the historic, study some history and you'll understand that better. So guns should not, do not have, there are many places in the country today where guns should never be allowed to, in, in, and this is, and the legislature is certainly sure. one place, schools or another, and I'll leave it at that. That's right. I, I, I say again, this, this legislature is slow to the trigger on this. We have not been, Inez, uh, about it, but Republican opponents, some of this, some folks want to hang this on Governor Michelle Lujan Grisham. Is there any bounce for her on this decision? I mean, doesn't seem like she was part of this push. The Capitol is run, as, as Dan said, by the Legislative Council, and that's their call. And, you know, 30 other states already do this. I am sad personally because if people weren't idiotic enough to take weapons where they don't need to be, mm -hmm. I wouldn't have to walk through a metal detector starting, you know, in December. Right. And I love the roundhouse being open and... Um, it's just an incredible space as a public citizen mm -hmm. to be able to go see your legislator at work without having to, any of the, the hassle that you get in the Capitol and other buildings mm -hmm. in Washington. So this is because people are not practicing proper decorum. You know, guns have a role in people's lives. We have a second amendment. You know, I have spent my summer target shooting um, as a way to meditate because it's a really mm -hmm. concentrated task where you think about only that. Um, so I have no problem with anyone's ownership of guns. I do think that you use them when you're going shooting. You don't use them to show that you have them or that you're there to protect the world from something that doesn't need protection. It's just, it makes no sense. Mm -hmm. Hey, Daniel, after last year's session, entirely remotely because of COVID-19, you know, some lawmakers said the, some practices are going to continue. We're moving to a place where the halls of government literally off limits to the public. And what impact will that have long term? Yeah, I mean, I, I think there's a definite, you know, it's funny to watch how the battle works, right? I mean, at first it was all the smoky back rooms, mm -hmm. then there was this big fight for transparency, so then everybody started publishing everything and printing everything, and then, you know, the information became overwhelming and people didn't know how to go get it all, and uh, so then now, then we went through the whole, whole deal where we had legislators remember the whole, we're going to live stream this committee meeting, I don't care what they say, you know, we went to live streaming and, you know, pretty soon, I mean, now I I, yeah, I mean, I think I think the days of walking through the Capitol and, and getting to know your legislator may be far gone. I will say that may not be a bad thing, though. Why? I mean, the more that these guys are at home, you know, I, I could tell you from not only my own personal experience, but, you know, dealing with other legislators, mm -hmm. you know, you go down to somebody's hometown and meet representative so-and-so. Lots of times they were far different in Thank that you. hometown than they were during the 60 days in Santa Fe. Thank you. And I've always said it may be better to have them have to go out every day to the grocery store, pick their kids up from school in their local town while they're going on Zoom meetings and voting than it is to go up to Santa Fe and live for 60 days and be wined and dined by everybody who makes you think you're important. Um, and then you go home. You know, my I was always grounded quickly. My wife would remind me that as the most powerful man in the legislature, it was time to take out the trash and mow the yard. So you would get humbled <laughs> quickly when you got home yep. that might do us some good in politics if people are humbled and uh, show a bit of humility on a daily basis instead of outside of the 60 and 30 day sessions good points there that's all the time we have for that issue but we'll see how it all works out when lawmakers take up redistricting sometime next month not too far off up next on the line the state moves ahead with plans to vaccinate kids against covid19 how much do you love the google doodles i know that i do 
uh, and have spent uh, many non-productive hours jumping in to learn more about interesting people, interesting inventions, whatever the Google Doodle of the day has to bring to me in an interactive digital way. And you might have missed it, but November is Native American Heritage Month, and Google kicked off the month with a very special Google Doodle honoring Zuni artist Wewa. Uh, and uh, it's a fascinating story behind Wewa, an ambassador really in many ways to Washington, D.C. in the late 19th century, a Zuni uh, artist, a potter, and a uh, texter, a weaver. And so just a fascinating story, and even more fascinating by the fact that the uh, Google worked with another Zuni artist, Mallory Kwitaki, on the Google Doodle. And uh, our correspondent, Antonia Gonzalez, caught up with Mallory this week to find out more about how this all came about and who WeWa was. And we wanted to bring that all to you. A fascinating discussion. Didn't have time for the full interview in the show this week, but luckily here we can bring it to it to you in its entirety. So here now, Antonia Gonzalez. Hello, I'm Antonia Gonzalez. Google kicked off Native American Heritage Month with an interactive doodle. The Google Doodle honored the late Zuni Pueblo weaver, potter, and fiber artist Wewa. The late Wewa was a revered cultural leader devoting their life to cultural preservation. Joining me now is Zuni Pueblo artist Mallory Kwatowki. Welcome to New Mexico in Focus. Hi, Keshi. Thanks for having me today. Well, please introduce yourself. My name is Mallory Kwatowki. I'm from Zuni Pueblo. Mallory Kwatowki lets you know how Thank you. And, uh, go ahead and start us off by telling us who Wewa was. Wewa was just this absolutely gorgeous individual from um, the late 1800s. Uh, Wewa was born a male but lived. Um, their life as a woman doing uh, female roles within Zuni culture, but also still practicing um, all the male uh, roles as well from the culture, religious, uh, through the Kiva system and um, the medicine societies. Wewa was basically our first ambassador to Washington, D.C. Uh, she used to accompany our governor to Washington as a translator and, you know, they used to call Wewa the Zuni princess and people would flock to come see Wewa demonstrate the arts that she was very well known for, pottery weaving and did a little stint at the Smithsonian and um, got to demonstrate the, the work that they did. And um, that's just DC, but in Zuni, she was very well um, thought of, um, very endearing person generous, um, a mediator for everybody, not just socially. She wasn't just uh, someone you could go and talk to, but she, you know, was a medicine person. So they would, um, that, that was a uh, part of her role in within the medicine society. However, also, um, we were, and, uh, her husband were very well known for adopting, um, orphan children, within Zuni and just had a very abundant, loving home. And these stories have been passed down 
from our generations. It's um, and there uh, there is a book about Liwa, but uh, we 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 talk about her endearingly back at home still to this day. And for our audience members who may not be familiar with um, you know the different pronouns, how you're using them, but also just um, you know two spirit community members across not only you know, here in New Mexico, but across mm -hmm. the country are really, um, I guess, part of tribal, tribal, tribal nations. So how mm -hmm. is that in your nation? In Zuni, within Zuni, we do recognize a third gender. It's called Shahmana. It's usually the male um, person taking on the woman's role. However, we don't have pronouns within a Zuni language, so we don't have a he or her. Uh, everybody's a they or them. And so, um, being that we're, you know, translating our culture from Zuni to English, we kind of go back and forth using him, her, there. So I, I feel that, um, you know, there were times where we, we've all talked about this and how we were, was, you know, a spiritual leader, a religious leader. There were times where there were male roles that were only meant for male. So those, those were the times that when we would talk about him in English, we'd say him and he, and then the other roles, the, the medicine role and the social role, the caregiving roles were, were calling, you know, we were her. And it's, 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 it's kind of difficult to do the translations and a lot of the cultural roles that we were had um, when he was here. And so it's, we, we kind of go back and forth. And um, I would say the them there and is the proper way to um, talk about Weiwa. So share about the collaboration. How did the collaboration with Google and uh, yourself and the Zuni Pueblo come about with this Google Doodle to celebrate, uh, not only honor WeWa, but also kick off and celebrate Native American Heritage Month? Uh, I got a text message one day uh, asking if I am um, able to take part in a really big project. And I said, of course, you know, I, I, I would like to. Um, and they did not mention uh, that it was Google. They did say it's going to be about WeWa. And I said, oh, how exciting will that be? And, and uh, they said, oh, they'll contact you. And my next message was Sophie from Google. And I, so it was really surprising. I thought I was going to wake up the next morning and it was a dream or something. But um, Google got, a, got in contact with Zuni Pueblo before any of this really um, came about. And I was uh, mentioned in their talks as, uh, as an artist that um, would be able to take upon a, a challenge like this. I mean, it was to me and probably to a lot of other artists, the time frame was, was pretty short. <laughs> so it's about a month and a half of working that I did of painting. Um, most Google Doodles are digitally created. Um, so I was a little bit more different because my um, creations were all done with acrylic painting and we would go back and forth on, um, on the process. And so we all signed the NDAs and it was <laughs> super hard to keep it under wraps because I was going home um, less often. And I know friends and family were wondering, what are you up to? You're always in that garage. <laughs> What's going on? And um, yeah, it was all, all I could say half the time, um, you know, when people really started asking, I said, Google. And they're like, that's all you have to say. <laughs> that's all I'm going to.
the same, <laughs> but it was quite the process. Um, I kept in contact with um, Sophie from Google and um, sending over my sketches, which is very different from my work process as an artist. I um, have a hard time sketching and then following my sketch. So this is, this is a challenge. And uh, however, it's um, I surprised myself by keeping up with the deadlines. And it was amazing to have a, a little spreadsheet going on what is due, what's next, what's the process, the steps. I've never, I've never been so organized in my life. <laughs> and I, I'm definitely taking a lot from it. And um, uh, it was just, uh, just I think the hardest was um, trying to keep this all uh, a secret. <laughs> And what kind of response have you received since the Google was um, went live? Uh, what kind of response, not only from the community, but across the country, have you heard? Well, my community, I, I did this for them. And I'm just very happy. My heart has been beaming all 48 hours since <laughs> the launch. And um, I'm seeing a lot of positive um, comments and people have been contacting me through email, through phone, just saying how great this is. I had a neat conversation with a, with a two-spirited individual and how they, um, you know, this has really made them feel more um, uh, seen now. It's like it validates um, this current state of um, how it, it's hard living as a two-spirited individual and just these reminders of our culture and our past. This is something that isn't new. It is um, practices we've had since before contact. And so bringing these stories to light, um, I know my people back home in Zuni, we, we grew up hearing these things and we're still practicing these things. It is not old, it is not dead. It is something that we wanted to share with the world. and. And I know that um, the children in Zuni, my kids are contacting me saying, this is all we're talking about in class, mom. <laughs> it's like, mom, every single class, this is what they're talking about. They're sharing your video. I'm pretty sure my kids are tired of seeing me right now <laughs> in their classroom. But um, just, the, just the outpouring of support, I mean, um, it's been great. And, and across Indian country, a lot of um, Outlets, native sources have, 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 you know, shared my work and everyone seems super proud and I'm very happy that it's resonating. I wanted it to reach um, all of Native America, all of Turtle Island. I needed people to, to come back and, and recognize, you know, our heritage and how important these, these uh, older customs have, have um, you know, they stayed, they're still here and we need to kind of revive the talking about it, the sharing of these stories and what better but through art and um, the this digital platform we all now have at our fingertips, Google. It's something, you know, it, I know my people are proud and I'm very happy that, that I, we were able to make it work. I sincerely appreciate uh, Curtis um, at the museum and the tribal council for, you know, giving us this opportunity to, to share U.S. legacy. And what do you hope that people do take away from this? Um, not only learning about Zuni Pueblo and this unique community, um, but is there anything else that you hope people take away? I really wanted um, We was legacy to be shared. Um, 
the fact that Milo was such, you know, a caring individual, they um, obviously the, their story is still alive. The, Wewa might have passed in the late 1800s, but we talk of Wewa as if she was still here, as if we just talked to her like last week or last month. And we, we share these stories and this individual, um, so kind and so accepting. And being a, an ambassador without anybody, you know, challenging them to be that way, just to be for your people, be, be that resilience that we speak of. and the the caring and the empathetic empathy empathetic nature of wewa we should all be that way we need to be accepting we need to be loving we need to be uh, understanding listen and then teach at the same time and so these um this legacy that we you know has i i feel that we all should take part in it you know from here on out if if, if we haven't thought about it because we you know, not just as artists, um, but also as, as, as in, um, individuals. If you have the knowledge, if you are a traditional keeper of, of traditional knowledge, there should be, you know, other ways we can share this information. Um, we have ears in different platforms now, as I said, digital, we're online. Our kids are on TikTok, our kids are on Instagram. How do we weave those um, traditional knowledges within these platforms? Like, how do we reach? And I think Google just gave us that stepping stone. I feel that things like this, we're allowed to share. We're able to share. And and as as, as a keeper of of these knowledge um, databases we have within our tribes, I feel that we should find this uh, this form of communication a way to share our knowledge so that our customs um, don't fade out. And that goes along perfectly with cultural preservation and efforts that are taking place here in New Mexico by tribes and also tribes across the country, both with language, culture, history, anything to add to that. Mm -hmm, absolutely. And I tell a lot of my fellow artists that this is kind of your role, even though we're not necessarily record keeping um, per se, but anything we put down, any traditional design, any pottery that we create, any weaving that we've woven, we're continuing that exact legacy and we're gonna continue it by continuing to create. And what more to do than to add to these creations our stories. Um, and, and that's the kind of artist that I am. Um, I, I use art as a form of communication. It's a tool for communication. My current um, job is actually working with the College of Pharmacy here at UNM Health Sciences uh, with the Community Environmental Health Program. I use artwork to help explain um, the uh, environmental impacts, the health impacts on um, indigenous communities living in and around abandoned uranium mines. So this form of artwork has been uh, very useful and resourceful to reach the people because um, we're, I'm culturally tailoring things that are, are really hard to um, conceptualize, scientific terms, medical um, pathways, and things of that nature. And during that, the process, I realized that um, not only are we Native people uh, more uh, cognizant of storytelling and visual learning, um, the fact that we can add our stories in return. So it's like a multi-directional form of communication that we're also not just doing this for the communities, but we're also sharing 
our uh, traditional ideas and and i feel that that helps in in our research and and to tell you know the government agencies how important and how sacred our lands are and, and our bodies and our spiritual ways of life and that it is important that we are all intact with the world and with the earth and and so these stories are told through art and so and it is reaching these uh these agencies and and helping research and so i feel that as an artist, um, cultural preservation is something that you're aiding and you're helping. And uh, to all the Native artists out there, I'm, you know, I'm sending so much love and support that we continue this um, this uh, path. Well, thank you so much for joining us on New Mexico in Focus, Zuni Pueblo artist Mallory Kwiatkowski. Thank you. That will do it for this episode of New Mexico and Focus, the podcast. We appreciate you tuning in. Be sure to give us a like, leave us a review. All those things really help spread the word. Subscribe if you haven't already. We really appreciate you listening as always. want to let you know in our next episode, more great things from this week's show and extras as well, including the COVID-19 vaccine now coming to New Mexico children near you if they're under age 12 and over age four. And so we'll talk about how that rollout will play out. Also, a interesting rally at the UNM campus where students marched to President Stokes's office, encouraging the university's foundation, the fundraising arm, to divest any of its investments in fossil fuel industries because of the damage being done to the climate by those industries. That's the argument of the students. We've got that all for you and much more coming up on our next episode. Until then, have a terrific weekend. And again, thanks for listening.